0: Howdy howdy motherfuckers, it is episode 11, I believe it's number 11, of the Fight Figures podcast and I am your intrepid host Callum from Fight Figures, the YouTube channel which hasn't done anything except spurt words at you in this format for the past two months because shit man, I'm busy, I've got so many things to do, I'm running around every which way, so sitting down and editing a long ass video it's not even long. The, the one I've got in the pipeline that's been sitting in Premiere Pro for fucking a month isn't even that long. I just It's difficult getting around to uh, finishing some of the VFX for it, because I like making cool title screens, and you have to spend a little bit of time in After Effects to get that right. And realistically, I'm not that great at After Effects. I'm pretty good. You know, I can do some basic... like I can superimpose graphics on top of stuff. I can do tracking. I can do some basic masking and stuff, but you know... That's beside the point anyway. Let's stop fucking around and let's talk about this card. U- UFC 276 went down this weekend and it was pretty good. There were a couple of There were a couple of interesting results. There were a couple of big wins, a couple of big losses. For the most part though, my predictions were pretty solid. I was I, I don't usually do full on prediction lines the way that I did last week. Well, not last week. It was like Friday or Saturday or something. It was it was a pretty late podcast. It was pretty close to the event. Regardless, during that podcast, episode 10, I laid out all of my predictions, and I went back and I listened to them again. And a lot of them are pretty damn accurate. Like, for example, let's take the main event. Israel Adesanya versus Jared Cannonier. I initially had Adesanya via fourth round KO slash TKO, and then I switched it when I looked at the sports bet odds and went, ah, oh, only like two twenty. I thought people were going to be. I thought the odds for decision were going to be a lot lower than that. I thought they were going to be like two. Uh, sorry, a dollar seventy or something like that. A dollar fifty, like basically guaranteed. But there was there was a bit of headway in terms of Jared getting finished, so kind of allowed the decision line to balloon a little bit. And at that point, I changed my prediction to Israel sanya via decision, because I thought, oh, you know, if you're going to go a bet, that's the bet to make. And lo and behold, Israel sanya wins a very convincing decision. Actually, not as convincing, in my opinion, as some people thought it was. Now, I have, I have a couple of thoughts on this, because I think, A, it was a more entertaining fight than people are giving credit to it being, and B, it was a more competitive fight. Did I say... Entertaining. I said entertaining on the first one. Yeah, it was it was both more entertaining than people give a credit and it was more it was more competitive than people are giving a credit for being. I thought Cannoneer probably could have won two rounds. I don't know, it was difficult. What was it? Was it the third round? Either the third or the fourth round, he, he did actually he outstruck Izzy, at least when they brought up the unofficial statistics during the event. And additionally I just thought in those rounds, Jared was actually landing some of the biggest shots. So whilst I don't think he was winning any rounds convincingly, certainly not in the same way that, like, Izzy won the second round and he won that convincingly. Yeah, I just thought, you know, Jared Jared made it a little bit of a dogfight, particularly in that fourth round, and Izzy, you know, as he was coming into the clinch, Izzy usually, usually sorry, utilizes the double-collar ties very effectively to mitigate his opponents flurrying in on him. He did it really well against Brad Tavares. He did it a bit against Kelvin Gastelum. He did it against... It wasn't double-collar ties. It was more the single-collar tie. But he used collar ties against Paulo Costa. When Costa was, was able to cut off the cage and was able to push easy up against the fence for brief periods of time, he uses that double-collar tie very effectively. And... Jared was able to go over the top of it, was actually landing some good shots over the top of it in the fourth round, I think it was. Yeah, he, he entered the pocket, and Izzy instinctively went for the double-collar ties, and Jared had clearly prepared for that outcome, and he was landing good shots over the top, and, you know, his issue was that he was too inactive in the clinch. He wasn't actually really doing anything, and Izzy is a strong motherfucker. He is very underrated in terms of his strength, and part of it's also his length. He's able to leverage that length, Quite effectively, and he was able to turn Jared many times. Actually, He was doing really well. He—I mean—we'll talk about this in a second with Alexander Volkanovski versus Max Holloway, but he is just so good at getting the single collar tie on one side and then fighting for wrist control on the other side, and using that to angle off. He will, you know, use the use the single collar tie and pull with it, and offset his opponent's balance, like, turn them around, in the clinch, and then that's when he escapes, into the middle of the octagon. I just don't know, off the top of my head, anyone who consistently uses, the single collar tie, in mixed martial arts, as effectively, at least on a defensive level, on a defensive level, no one is is as effective, with a single collar tie, as Israel Adesanya is. So, and I think, this fight just proved that, because there were there were times when Jared, yes, he was getting into the clinch, and he was controlling Izzy e against the fence, but ultimately, he wasn't able to take him down. He was getting angled off on fucking heaps. Izzy wasn't held against the cage for more than like a minute and a half, two minutes at a time. I think that was in the fourth round, he got held against the cage for like a minute and a half, and then he was able to, you know, circle off. There was a point, I think it was in the fifth round, it must have been in the fifth round, where... I think Jared had him backed up to the cage, initiated the clinch, and Izzy turned him him and then separated, and it was just incredible how quickly he was able to go from having his own back against the cage, being in a compromised position, to all of a sudden pulling Jared into the clinch and utilizing a single collar tie and wrist control to turn Jared turn Jared's back to the cage, and then all of a sudden, Izzy's the one pressing forward. Izzy's the one who's in a good offensive position, you know? Just so few guys in mixed martial arts are that good at using the single call tie. It's incredible. What other stuff was there that was interesting? I thought Jared did a good job preparing for the leveling out of the stance that Izzy often does when he hits the cage. Izzy, when he when he's backed up to the cage, he will level out his stance, so he'll go from southpaw or orthodox, whatever he is, to having both of his feet level with one another, and he'll faint both directions, kind of like what Dominic Cruz used to do back in the day really effectively. And, you know, he, he might faint to the left, and then... His opponent might throw a shot in that direction, and then that's when he goes the other direction. He goes to the right, and he tries to circle off back into the middle of the octagon, and that's when, you know, he's able to, to reset. So, the, this can kind of be exploited, as we saw against Marm Vittori. The issue with Vittori was that he just dove in on single legs instead of taking advantage, which was very irritating. But... Izzy can kind of get backed up to the cage, and if you do force him to level out his stance, and you're able to kind of read the direction that he's going to end up going, you can strike in that direction preemptively, and and you can get a decent shot off. And there was a point in this fight where, the, I remember them showing it at the end of the fight in the replays, there was a point where Izzy had leveled off his stance and was trying to to swing out to the left, to his left. and Jared. I clearly read that move and put out an, a a wide right hook and was able to catch Izzy as Izzy was circling. And I just thought that was cool, you know. I think Jared, whilst he did a bit of chasing in this fight again, similar to the Rob Whittaker fight where there was a lot of chasing and where, you know, the jab Izzy Izzy's jab looked sensational. It was so long. It was so incredibly long. There were a few times where he jabbed Kananir and I went, oh my god, I know this guy has an insane reach, but he just... It looks like he's reaching from a town over. It's incredible. He just he's able to pick at you from miles away. It was it was insane what he was doing in that first and that second round in terms of the jab. Really impressive stuff. But yeah, I just I thought Cannoneer, whilst he was chasing quite a bit, and there were a lot of times where Izzy was allowed to get into the middle of the octagon a little too easily for my liking. I thought he did a decent job of trying to set up those shots as Izzy was circling, you know. So yeah, I think I think you could make an argument for the third and the fourth rounds for Jared, but ultimately, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty clear unanimous decision for Israel. I was impressed. I was very impressed. I thought. Yeah, this is the second fight in a row where prior to the fight, I've been talking shit about Izzy's southpaw straight left. Again, before the Rob Whitaker fight, I, it would have been before the Rob Whitaker rematch. I put out that video that was uh, deconstructing Israel Adesanya's fight with Blahovic for the for the lightweight championship back last year. And I deconstructed that, and we talked extensively about the southpaw straight left, and how I didn't really like how Izzy throws it because he kind of flicks it out, and it doesn't—it doesn't have a one—it doesn't have a position one to position two kind of trajectory. No, it flicks out from the shoulder, and the elbow lifts up, and I just find he falls forward with it quite easily, and you know, it, it's not like he snaps it out. It's not like it comes from the chin, and it goes directly out, and it hits his opponent, and then it comes back. Like his jab will, often. You know, his jab's so snappy. Particularly from Orthodox. It's the same hand. It's just, he switches stance. You know, so his jab is really snappy, but then when he goes southpaw and he throws the left, I don't know, he flicks it out there. And he got countered with it so many times against blahovic blahovic was throwing that left hook counter to the straight left from southpaw, that Izzy was showing, and he was landing pretty consistently. There weren't a lot of times in that fight where I thought Izzy had success out of southpaw when it came to the hands. And often, Izzy will also throw the straight left and fall forward and throw a right hook. And he ends up in a kind of compromised position where he's a little too close to his opponents. And it's not like he angles off to the side. He's kind of right in front of them. And he can get hit. Again, Blahovich counted him a few times when he was throwing that right hook after the straight left. And I just thought... I thought that it wasn't a good look going into that Whitaker rematch. And then, of course, he drops Whitaker in the first round of that fight with the fucking straight left from Southpaw. So I look like a bit of a dumbass there, don't I? And then in this fight, he comes out, and and I thought he landed a couple of really good straight lefts from Southpaw in that second round, I'm going to say. Yeah, it was just... I thought that second round was quintessential Izzy and was the kind of Izzy that... I mean, we've seen Izzy be really good over the years. Like, in the first Whitaker fight, he looked fucking on. You know, he looked incredible. And against Paulo Costa, looked sensational. Had some moments against Martin Vittori in that rematch, but for the most part, you know, it wasn't electrifying. Yeah, I thought... I thought in that second round here with Cannoneer, that was the best he'd looked in years. He looked so good. He looked so sharp. He was landing beautiful low kicks, and yeah, there, there were a few times where he was. Oh, just some of his feints, his hip feints with the low kicks were beautiful. Yeah, I don't know. It just I, I thought Izzy looked sensational in that second round, and then he kind of dropped off in terms of output. He himself after the fight spoke about you know he he didn't feel particularly comfortable throwing shots after those initial entries. So he's throwing the jab cross enter into the pocket, and then from there he's not as comfortable throwing combinations. And I think it was just because Cannoneer is a really powerful guy, you know? So, it's difficult to land long combinations against a guy who you know can spark your ass and put you on put you on your back. On your back. Which is why the Alex Pierre fight is going to be really interesting. <laughs> Which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, so now Izzy is actually hes really climbing up there in terms of the the defenses because he's so consistent. I mean, last year he only fought twice, I believe. Yeah, he fought Blahovich for the, the light heavyweight championship and then he beat Vittori. But yeah, I think he's averaging now two fights a year. He's probably going to fight again before the end of this year then. So what does that put him? In 2020, he only fought twice. He defended against Romero and then Costa fought twice last year and he's already fought, fought twice this year. Actually, I'm now looking back. Last year, so he fought UFC two fifty nine against Plahovich and then he fought in June, so three months later against Vittori, and then he didn't fight for the final six months of the year. I mean, they, that's when they were setting up the Whitaker rematch. So you know, but but you haven't you have someone who's immediately available, who didn't take any damage in their what was essentially their number one contenders fight. So you assume that they're going to be able to set up that fight with Pierre pretty quickly. So that'll be that'll be interesting. I always do love a really consistent champion. We, we love a champion defending constantly. And that is what Adesanya is. And so he's, he's receiving a lot of flack. I see a lot of motherfuckers on the internet going, Is he so fucking boring? And the obvious comparison, the obvious person to point to is JSP. JSP, in my opinion, is still the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. And... He had a lot of fights like that. <laughs> a lot of fights that you can only go back now and really appreciate. You know, years removed from when they happened. Because when they happened, people were salty. Because it was five rounds of a guy dominating but not really trying to finish. So, eh. Fuck them, you know. I thought it was a really good victory from Adesanya in a lot of ways. That second round, like I've been saying, like I've just said for the past 10 minutes, that second round was quintessential Israel, Israel Adesanya. I loved that shit. You know, there were points in that, that second round where it reminded me of some of his his kickboxing work. You know? I Yeah. Just some of those fucking fights back in, in kickboxing when he's fighting in glory and shit. And some of those King of the Ring performances. You know? Come on. Why y'all gonna talk shit on this motherfucker, you bastards? Yeah, so he's six defenses now. One, two, three, four, five—only five. Sorry, shoot, counted incorrectly. So five defenses, pretty damn good. Anyway, let's talk about the fucking Cormay, which is actually the biggest fight of the uh, the evening, the fight that we should all be talking about. Alexander Volkanovski versus Max Holloway. Alexander Volkanovski defends his championship for, what is that now, the fourth time? Two defenses against Max, and then he also beat Ortega and Korean Zombie. Yep, four defenses now of his featherweight championship. And it's bringing all these motherfuckers out the woodwork to, again, start the, you know, the better than Jose Aldo train. It's like, shut the fuck up. Can we get, can we beat? Aldo's title defense record and then we can start talking about him being the greatest featherweight of all time. Can we do that first, okay? I'm sick of all these motherfuckers getting three or four title defenses and then we point to the guy who's got seven or eight and you go, oh, yeah, he's, that, that old guy isn't as good as this new guy. It's like, come on. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, that's beside the point. Alexander Volkanovsky did, in fact, actually, put on an insane performance. First round started, and I think we were all going, oh, okay, Max is, you know, he's been talking shit this week, or he's been talking about the significance of this fight. He's been talking about the legacy implications of this fight. If he isn't able to defeat Volkanovsky cleanly in any of these three contests, it's really going to impact on his his legacy. And as such, he's probably going to come out and he's going to be quite aggressive. And yeah, he just he wasn't allowed to be aggressive. He was doing the right things, you know. From that first round we're seeing the floating you know, the floating knee where he's he's picking up that lead leg feinting the teep similar to what he was doing in the rematch and he's trying to come in with the right hand or he's trying to come in with a double jab and things like that. You know, he's trying to break down the distance and he, he was utilizing his kicks same as in the rematch, but man Volko just shut him the fuck down. And Volko, what, what this performance felt like was it felt like he'd taken all of the things that he'd been working on in the previous fights and he incorporated them all in this this one perfect performance. You know, it wasn't perfect, of course. It couldn't be perfect because he fucking broke one of his hands, I think his left hand, in the second round of this fight, which is just it's crazy. It's crazy. Just took a break in the podcast to uh, smash out the rest of my coffee, anyway. Yeah, he broke his hand, and he just he kept he kept fucking throwing it. Insane. Yeah, no, there, there was a lot of interesting stuff in the first fight. He was throwing obviously a lot of low kicks. He was doing that. Ah, oh, it's my favourite thing. It's hmm, I love it so much when he'll throw the jab and or, or he'll throw the jab to set up the inside low kick, and then once. The inside low kick is kind of established, and he knows his opponent's going to step in to try and to try and counter that inside low kick. That's when what he'll do is he'll change what he's doing to an inside low kick that he pulls back into southpaw with. So he starts an orthodox, throws the inside low kick, and then takes that that leg that is currently kicking. He pulls it back so that he ends the shot in southpaw, and then he'll throw a counter hook. He'll throw like a check right hook oh man, he caught out Volkanovski with that shot a couple of times, quite a few times in that first fight. And, you know, that was kind of, that was what Volkanovski was doing on the whole in that first fight. He wasn't landing knockout blows, but he was landing consistently. And the low kicks weren't huge. They were kind of slappy low kicks for the most part. Or sometimes, you know, he's throwing an outside low kick naked, just trying to get Max thinking about stepping in and you know, oh, you can't step in cleanly. You can't just throw a double jab because I'm gonna I'm gonna punt out your your lead leg. So but yeah, he Most of the kicks in that fight were kind of slappy. They weren't super like he wasn't digging in with them. And I think part of that is because in that third round when he threw a lot of low kicks, the third round of the first fight this is, Max had kind of clued in, oh that's the game plan. Alex is throwing low kicks. This is how he wants to win the fight. Okay. And so he's kind of, he's thinking about that. That's when he switched southpaw and started trying to work stuff in that stance. And that's when he started trying to check a little more consistently. You know, when your opponent expects the low kicks, it's a lot more difficult to just dig in with them and really smash a low kick. Whereas in this fight, where Max, by the championship rounds, he he was consumed with the hands because Volkanovsky's hands looked incredible. His jab looked fucking sensational. You know, he was he was ducking under the jab of Holloway and he was coming up with the rear hand uppercut into left hook or he's coming up with just a left hook out of that duck. And oh he's coming up with such speed and I just don't know if I know anyone in MMA who's as good at coming out of a duck. Not not a roll and not a slip, but he's like ducking underneath the shot directly. And then he's coming up out of it with with fire and landing. Really effective work. I mean, if you've got to reach disadvantage, fuck it. You know, duck under the jab and, and then come out with a big left hook or come out with a rear-hand uppercut. You know? Strats. Yeah, so he's doing stuff like that and he's jabbing perfectly. He's landing the fade away right hand that we saw a lot in that, that first fight with Max. you know Max would throw a combination or would start trying to work his combinations and Volkanovski would just slip away or he'd throw a jab, he'd fade away inviting Max into the pocket and then he'd plant his rear leg and come forward with the straight right or the, or the overhand right just an intercepting fade away right hand and he was landing so consistently in that first round with that, in that first fight with that shot. And then in this fight, he just was landing consistently with it again. And it just completely stalls Max's progression. I mean... It's so, like, when you look at the Cater fight, Cater doesn't have that weapon. He just doesn't have that weapon that stops you in your tracks like that intercepting fadeaway right hand that Volkanovski does. And that's why Holloway is able to get off all that volume against someone like Cater. That's why he's able to do it against Rodriguez, even though it was a kind of back-and-forth fight. Holloway put up some crazy volume in that fight as well. He wasn't able to do it against Volkanovski in this context, because that kind of weapon, it just completely stunts your forward progression. You're not able to put up volume if you're getting, you know, your head snapped back as you're trying to step forward with a combination. So, you know, Volkanovski went back to the well with those kind of weapons, and he was throwing the straight right into switch right hook that he was throwing in the first fight as well, which is something I didn't mention in the preview, but it was something that I noticed most in the first fight back when I watched it originally. And it's something I'd forgotten kind of since then. But yeah, he throws, in that first fight, that straight right into a switch right hook from Southpaw. He throws it a lot, and he was having a lot of success with it in the first and the second rounds, like early on in the fight against Max. And he started throwing it again. Like I I said earlier, so many of the weapons that he has honed and utilized throughout the first two fights of this Holloway trilogy made a showing again in this context, and it just felt like he'd ironed them all out, and he'd perfected them, and he was able to utilize them, just, he was able to maximize their potential. It was really, really impressive. And then when he's got Max worried about the hands, that's when he starts throwing the kicks, and he threw some mental outside low kicks throughout this fight. There were a couple of times where he really turned the hip over, and he, he turned Holloway's leg all the way in he buckled the knee, and I'm just sitting there going, yep, you can only land those shots if they're too concerned about your hands to give a shit about the low kicks, and that that's just, that was the craziest thing about this fight, you know, he, he got Max so con- consistently concerned with the hands that he was able to land those big low kicks. He was able to really commit to the low kicks in a way that he wasn't able to in the first fight. And and I thought, coming out of the first fight, that's basically the perfect performance you can have against Max Holloway. <laughs> At this point in his career, that's as good as it's going to get. That's as good as it's going to look. But no, Volkanovski was like, how about I just make my jab look even better? And how about I just, you know, completely nullify all this shit and his grappling looked great. Oh, man. He does it so well. It's been like he does it similar to Piotr Jan, where Jan when he gets into the clinch is going to look for uh, an underhook on one side and then he's going to look for risk control on the other side and then once he has wrist control on on the other side he's going to he's going to pull his underhooking arm out. Maybe he'll post on the shoulder in the beat between pulling out the underhook or whatever. But he will pull out the underhook, and then he'll throw an elbow, or he'll throw a shot over the top, or he'll spin. He'll put up a knee. He he might put up, put up a fucking high kick. Like, Piotr Jan does that kind of stuff really, really well. It's one of the best parts of his game. And I thought Volkanovski was doing it really well in this fight as well. He's always done it. Volkanovski pulls out the underhook really effectively, and then goes over the top with the overhand right. Or he goes over the top with the elbow. Did it quite effectively against Chad Mendez. He did it a lot more in his early days in the UFC because he was a bit more of a wrestler back then. Go back and watch his fights with, you know, Jeremy Kennedy and Shane Young, Hirota as well. Like, a lot of really good work in those fights coming in with the overhand right and then entering the clinch or like shooting for a takedown and then getting pulled up. And then when he's in the clinch, that's when he's, you know, looking for risk control on one side and pulling out the rear hand or pulling out the the underhook, sorry, and then coming over the top with elbows and stuff like that. Did it a bit, a bit against Darren Elkins as well. Then he gets to the upper echelon of the division and then he starts kind of becoming more of an outstriker, you know, as we saw against Aldo and Holloway in the first few fights and and all that, but yeah, it was good seeing him go back to that, because it was really effective, and he landed a couple of really good shots over the top. And then there was a counter right hand, I think it was, that he landed when Holloway was stepping in at one point, and it cut Holloway's eyebrow open in the second round, I believe. And Holloway, yep. You watch the first round, and you go, oh, you know, that was relatively close, but I think Volkanovski edged it. Once that cut happened, it was kind of like, wow, wow. There's really no way Max is getting back into this fight with that. I mean, that is in the worst position. It's right on his eyebrow, and it is deep as shit. Like, they were pushing the Q-tip into the cut, and the the skin around the cut was covering the Q-tip entirely. It was one of the more disgusting cuts I've ever seen. Like, up there with a the Nate Diaz cut. Ugh. It was mental. I did not like it. I did not like it at all. Yeah, it's very disappointing if you're Max Holloway because it really kind of it puts him third. It puts him third in the featherweight division in terms of like overall legacy. Aldo's still at the top for me with Volkanovski gaining at quite a pace because I think Volkanovski proved in this fight. I mean, it, Holloway is a pound for pound talent. I think you got to put Volkanovski up at number one, pound for pound number one. He leapfrogs. Usman with that, because I don't think Usman's, um, I don't believe his caliber of opponent has been as high as Volkanovski's has, because Volkanovski's been fighting Max half the fucking time, so, yeah, the pound-for-pound number one fighter in the world is Volkanovski, I'd say, and Holloway is now kind of relegated to that third position, which is a bit disappointing, because we love Max Holloway, Max Holloway, fucking, he's fucking dope. I just, I, I don't know what happens to Holloway now. Is he consistent being a gatekeeper? Is he, not consistent, sorry. Is he content being a gatekeeper? If he is, then, you know, keep keep chugging away, keep doing your thing. If not, then, I don't know, there's going to be some soul searching. Because that second fight, it's easy to walk away from that and go, I thought I won that fight. And then come into a third fight with the attitude of, I thought I won that, that rematch. I can do that kind of thing again. And I can get the W this time. I can get the nod. But after a third fight like that, I mean, you know, maybe Max can... If someone can knock Volko off the perch, then, you know, Max has an avenue back into the title. Obviously, because who's going to deny him? I mean, he beats everyone else, it seems like. Maybe beat the shit out of Calvin Cater... Beat the shit, and oh, I didn't beat the shit, but like had a really good competitive fight and beat Gaia Rodriguez. Not a whole lot of guys up at that top of the division. Do you, do you really think Max Holloway doesn't beat Josh Emmett? Because I think he beats Josh Emmett. <laughs> Crazy take, I know. I don't know who'd bet that way, huh? But yeah, I also predicted that one. Good job for me getting Alexander Volkanovsky. Who else did I predict on this one? I got a couple wrong. I put a bet at the end of the last episode that was like, hey, these are my guarantees. And I think what did they conc- what did they contain? One of them was Brad Riddell, who got submitted in forty five seconds after getting fucking after getting hurt by Jalen Turner. Jalen Turner, man. Okay, now I am I'm gonna stop doubting this man. That's a very legit win. And it was a very impressive win. So, I will stop doubting Jalen Turner. He's beaten the shit out of a lot of Australian New Zealanders. So, I will... <laughs> He's beaten the shit out of the Anzacs. So, <laughs> I will stop putting disrespect on his name. I will start putting respect on his name instead. And, uh, yes... So that was one of my guarantees. Was Brad Riddell. I've got him by second round TKO, and then he comes out and he gets finished real quick. So uh, awkward. And I also had, I also had Jessica Rose Clark as a as a guarantee. <laughs> that's awkward. Got submitted in forty two seconds. So two of my guarantees got submitted in forty five seconds or less. So that's awkward. And also Jessica got her arm broken by Stolyarenko. So that's not cool. But uh, good job Stolyarenko. Impressive victory over someone who I think is very legit. I really like watching Jessica Rose Clark fight, and I'm very disappointed, honestly, for her. But yes, good job Stoliorenko, that was cool. Everything else was pretty good. I had Macy Barber beating Jessica Ai, but who the fuck didn't? I mean, that was a pretty obvious one. Andre Muniz defeated Uriah Hall, and Uriah Hall just came out on Instagram and was really salty about the whole thing. It was like, oh my god, he just laid on me. It's like, bro... <laughs> What did you expect? <laughs> he just hugged me. And he's, he's going, Oh yeah, but I'm a blue belt. And this guy's a black belt. And he couldn't even submit me, huh? I'm like, bitch, that's what I say in the gym. That's what I say when a fucking... You know, every now and again you'll be rolling with a fucking... With a brown belt or something. And me, who... Like, at my gym, if you don't do gi... Then you don't get graded. Or at least, I've never been invited to be graded or anything like that. So... If you just do no-gi, and I only do no-gi, then you don't, like, you won't get a belt or anything. So I'm technically white belt. I'm not that good. So white belt is probably quite accurate. But, yeah. (laughs) It felt like, it felt like something that I would say. Like, oh, yeah, the brown belt over there couldn't even submit me in our five-minute round. (laughs) Haha, what a bum. I'm a fucking white belt. He basically pulled that card on Instagram. He was like, oh, I'm a blue belt, and you couldn't even submit me. It's like... (laughs) Yeah, but you couldn't beat him either. <laughs> what the fuck's your point? You know? But then someone in the comments was like, You damn you salty, and your eyes like, yeah, of course I'm salty. I just lost a fight, you know? No shit. And I'm kinda like, oh yeah, I get that, you know? Sometimes we come out and we say like kind of nonsensical things because the emotion of the whole situation is overwhelming. And losing a fight on a stage like this. It would probably prove overwhelming for me, too. So I'll give you a pass there, Mr. Hall. Muniz wins another fight. Cool. I like watching him work up the ranks. He's nice. I like his work. Macy Barber was cool against Jessica Rai as well. I, did, I kind of just brushed over it, but I thought she did great work in the clinch. I'm liking Macy Barber. I like her more and more every time. I don't like listening to her on the mic that much. I think she's a bit irritating. But I think in the cage, when she's actually fighting, she puts on some fucking entertaining fights. Her fight with Alexa Grasso, a banger. So, yeah, cool to see her get another victory. I believe she is on a three-fight win streak now. Yes, she is. She beat Miranda Maverick, Montana De La Rosa, and now Jessica Rai. Exciting stuff. I hope she can, uh, she can keep building up the rankings because she's entertaining to watch in the clinch. Very entertaining to watch in the clinch. Yeah, her grappling's fun. What can I say? What else do we have here? Uh Drus Duplessis, I told y'all not to bet on that because uh yeah, I didn't know what the fuck was gonna happen. I said Brad Tavares would probably win that, but uh alas, Mr. Duplessis is he's always fighting like he, he's meant to lose, but then he just doesn't. He's a weird character. But I like watching him him win and I like listening to him in interviews after because I love his accent. So, you know. Ten out of ten. That was cool. So yes, I, I didn't advise a bet on that. Ian Gary defeated Gra- Gabriel uh, Gabriel Green. I thought he actually looked really good, solid, decent. Some of his his combination work was a little bit, little bit wild. Kind of lost it a bit, but I thought for the most part quite aggressive. You know, some moments of tentativity, but for the, yeah, no, I thought he was cool. I thought it was good, good progression for the man. I don't like how the UFC is kind of building him up and pushing him a little bit too quickly. I think give him a little bit more time with some of the lower echelon guys because as we saw in his last fight, he can be quite tentative and unwilling to engage. Against Darian Weeks, that was. And... You know, he didn't have a great UFC debut. He was able to pull off the knockout, but it wasn't like he was winning the whole time convincingly against Jordan Williams. So, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't push him into the top 15 just yet. Maybe hold off on that shit. And then I bet Jim Miller would beat Donald Cerrone, and he did, and then Cerrone retired, and we're all kind of like, thank God, you know. I'm, I'm sick of talking about Donald Cerrone being a problematic human being. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah, Jim Miller, I believe he's now got the most wins in UFC history again. He just keeps bouncing up and down like someone else. Who, who else is up there in terms of that record? Most wins. Andre Orlovsky. Basically, every fight they have is them just trading positions in that in, on that record. You know, and Charles Oliveira is also coming for it. He has 21 wins in the UFC, so <laughs> give him a second and he'll... Uh, He'll be up there and he'll be, he'll be taking that record. Yeah. Really impressive victory from Jim Miller. Got that guillotine real fucking quick. <laughs> Very impressive. And then, who else? I, I also, I bet on Brian Barberina. I bet on Brian Barberina. So fuck y'all bitches. And Alex Piera. Yeah. Let's talk about Alex Piero versus Sean Strickland. Sean Strickland did dumb shit and decided to walk forward against the former Glory champion. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious to behold. And it really did highlight how favorable this matchmaking has been for Piero. But, like, I don't give a shit. He's going to be an exciting fight for the champion. So, yeah, who cares? Yeah, it was really really funny. Piero was throwing the jabs drawing out that, that rear-hand parry from Sean, and then he just went around the guard and left-hooked the shit out of him and then followed up with a beautiful straight right, and it uh, it slept Sean, and then Sean was like, no, no, I wasn't finished, and it's like, yes, you were. Yeah. That's going to be in so many YouTube karma, like UFC karma this guy got beaten the fuck up after talking shit compilations. It's going to be in so many of those, and it's going to be really frustrating to watch as someone who watches this sport consistently because it's like, just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Alex Pierre is now going to get pushed to a championship fight. It's probably going to happen... Oh, I'd assume that it happens in, like, November or something. That'd be my prediction. Exciting. I'd love to watch that. Uh, maybe they can do it in New Zealand. They won't, but maybe they could. And I think Pierre is gonna bring it to Israel a bit more. So I think we'll probably get a really entertaining fight out of that. And obviously, it's basically just basically just gonna be a kickboxing bout. It's not gonna be a kickboxing bout. It'll be a Muay Thai bout because there'll be there'll be more clinching in kickboxing versus Muay Thai. Muay Thai they allow the clinch. Kickboxing they don't really. Depends on the the referee, I guess. But. Yeah, it'll be kind of like a Muay Thai fight, because Izzy's probably going to be using the single and double collar ties defensively quite a bit. It should be really fun. I'm very excited for that fight. I think I'd bet Izzy in that context, but it's a difficult fight, honestly. I think it's a difficult fight. How old is Alex nowadays? I keep forgetting. He's like 34. He's not actually that old. I keep thinking he's like 35, 36, because he looks a bit older than he actually is, but Yeah, that should be very fun. I'm very excited. As for Sean Strickland, I mean, I don't know. I think he just goes back and, you know, fights the Jack Hermansons of the division and fades into obscurity because, I mean, he's just... He's got a decent jab, but he always stands really tall and leans back at the hips he can beat guys like, oh, who's that motherfucker he was talking to the entire time? Jack Marshman. He can beat motherfuckers like Jack Marshman. Beat Brendan Allen by TKO a little while ago, which was a pretty impressive victory. But then he has decisions against Jocko, and you're just like, uh, that wasn't that interesting. I don't care. Holy shit, I completely forgot that he had that fight with Uriah Hall. Because I think it was boring as shit, if I recall correctly. I think so. And that was in the middle of last year as well. I probably shouldn't forget that. But I do, because who cares? Sean Strickland is not that interesting. Yeah. Anyway. So that was cool. What else was there? There was Brian Barbarena versus Robbie Lawler, which was fantastic. And it was really interesting because I think Robbie Lawler's defense, it still looked sensational. And I saw some people talking shit about it online saying, oh, you know, Robbie Lawler is like, you know, he's a poor man's Floyd Mayweather, whereas, you know, Floyd's trying to. He's like bouncing specific shots off, you know, his his shoulders and his arms, his forearms and whatnot. He's being very conscientious of all his defense. Robbie just kind of sits behind his lead shoulder and just kind of puts his hands up and, and shakes his shoulders back and forth and, and prays. And I'm like, no, because he's barely getting hit clean at all. It's not just, it's not just random shit. He, he is looking for things like parries and stuff in the middle of taking these combinations and... You know, he does sometimes fire back counters. So I thought his defense was, for the most part, really, really good, particularly in that first round. I thought Brian was... I, I love his his strat of just throwing wilds, wild amount of shit, basically. Yeah, it was just... It was a heap of fun. It was a bit disappointing in the sense that Robbie Lawler got knocked out or got TKO'd. I mean, he didn't he looked pretty bad at the finish actually. Yeah, I thought it was a decent a decent stoppage from the ref, who I cannot recall who refed this fight, but yeah, I thought it was a decent stoppage just in terms of the timing. Thought Robbie I mean, technically you could have let it go for a couple more seconds, but I thought Brian was on him and Robbie was out of it. So it's like, yeah, do you really need to see that? Thought yeah, I just I, I really liked the combination work from Brian and I thought the elbows were sensational. There's not much more to say about that. I thought they both went back and forth a lot and there were some big shots landed by Robbie. He looked good. He looked good. For a forty year old, no less. Looks sensational. So, you know, we'll see what happens with him going into the future. Pedro Munoz versus Sean O'Malley ended in no contest via IPOK so that's cool, and Pedro's eye actually looks kind of jacked up post-fight, so it wasn't just like, oh, they're calling off the fight for nothing, but no, pretty legit, no contest, so, yeah, it is what it is, I thought the first round went to Pedro, but, like, kind of slightly, and I thought Sean was starting to come alive a little bit in that second round, there were some interesting things that he was starting to do. Thought he was letting the hands go a little more. He was a little bit tentative in that first round. Sean was, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe run it back down the track. I have no clue. Anyway, that was UFC two seventy six. I believe I've covered most of the fights there. It was decent. There were there were a few finishes here and there, and co main event was crazy. And then the main event I thought was an interesting technical battle. That yeah, that that's a point that I want to make. I thought the I thought the crowd was terrible for this event. Atrocious. Now Vegas crowds can be they can be a mixture because it's a very transient city. You know, people are people are constantly coming in, people are constantly coming out. So you get you get kind of different crowds every time and, you know, sometimes those crowds can be really impassioned, really impassioned fight fans because it's the fight capital of the world, you know? But then there are also times when there's people flying into Vegas to watch these fights and they're basically just clout chasers or, or they only give a shit about one or two of the fights and you know, so so some of these Vegas cards get really terrible, terrible crowds. And this was a terrible crowd. They were barely going off during Robbie Lawler versus Brian Barbarena. And I thought that was a banger. I thought that was a really sensational fight. I'd honestly think, I honestly think we might be talking about it in terms of like top 10 fights of the year more. And I just haven't seen that kind of dialogue about this fight. But we would be talking about it like that if the crowd was better and was popping as often as I think they probably should have been because there were there were a lot of shots that Robbie landed in that first round which made me go, oh, shit! And there were a lot of combinations that Brian was putting together that I went, wow, you know, he keeps going crazy. So, yeah, I just, uh, that was kind of shit. And then they were and Izzy and Cannoneer at the end of the fifth and and they were leaving, you know, at the end of that fight. They were leaving between the fourth and the fifth rounds and it's like, really? Okay, you know. I mean, you paid the tickets, I guess. Go ahead. There were just a lot of finishes that I thought they just didn't get up and about for. It was weird. It's very weird. Didn't really like that crowd. Anyway, let's talk about next week's UFC event. This week's, technically. It's main evented by Rafael dos Santos and Rafael Fiziev. Fucking banger. I don't actually know what the, the odds are for this one, but I think... They should be quite interesting. If we go have a geese for them, if I held versus Fiziev, RDA is a two eighty-one underdog versus a dollar forty-four for Fiziev. Fiziev, who the fuck knows? None of these white boys do, that's for sure. I think those are probably appropriate. I think RDA is going to have a really tough time in this contest. I mean, you know, he's coming off of that beating he just gave to Hernando Moicano. Now, that was a five-round beating because the... Who was he initially set to fight? Oh, he was set to fight Faziev, I believe. Yeah, he was set to fight Faziev. It was going to be five rounds at 272. It was going to be the first non-title, non-main event five-round fight In in a very long time, I think, if I recall correctly. Besides, or, well, Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz was five rounds, and that wasn't for, that wasn't a main event, and that wasn't, that wasn't for anything. So I guess that takes it. But yeah, it was going to, it was going to be one of those. And then Faziev got COVID the week of, or one week before the event, and Moicano had to step in on like four days' notice. And uh, he got he got the shit beaten out of him. Besides that, what else? He, he beat Paul Felder. And he got ranked off of that, which was crazy. It was absurd, you know? He'd gone up to welterweight. And he'd had, you know, up and down... Some up-and-down shit. You beat Tarek Savardine, submitted Neil Magny back at UFC 215, and then he beat Robbie Lawler. And that Lawler fight was really impressive. I mean, he was going really well to the body. I remember him throwing that, like, 40-punch combination at one point in the third round, I think it was. And Lawler's just sitting on the back foot, trying to bounce shots off the shoulder and parrying, parrying shots and whatnot. And I just remember... RDA struggling with the shots up top and not, not being able to really hit the head clean, but he was going to the body with it, had a beautiful right hook to the body throughout the course of that entire fight. And yeah, just looked, um, I mean, he just looked unstoppable. His cardio was sensational, which is no surprise. I mean, y'all saw the Tony Ferguson fight. That was in Mexico City. Tony and RDA threw crazy volume through five rounds in Mexico at altitude. Absurd stuff. But, yeah, so he goes up to welterweight, goes on that three-fight win streak, loses one to Colby Covington. That was for the interim welterweight championship at 225. There's a bit of, I don't know, there are some people who still, they still shake their fists and go, no, RDA should have won that fight because Colby's wrestling. He wasn't actually, he wasn't being active with it. He wasn't landing anything, he wasn't being damaging. But, you know, I think Colby won that fight. Oh, it's close. It's close. Lost that fight to Kamaru right before Usman got, I believe that was what prompted Usman's title shot against Woodley. And yeah, just got the, well, it didn't really get the shit beaten out of him, just couldn't really get up. Usman employed the wrestling heavy approach and shot some really bad shots. I remember the thing I most remember from that fight was Usman reaching for the legs, like his arms as far away from his body as possible. Now, if you go to re- go to a wrestling class, the first thing they'll tell you, or one of the first things that they'll tell you, is don't reach for legs. You keep your you keep little T-Rex arms, because you need to dig underhooks if someone shoots in on you, or if someone reverses position. You know, so you've got to keep little T-Rex arms, keep them right up near your body, and Usman was like reaching for the legs, and it's actually part of the reason that I picked Woodley going into that title fight that Usman got was... Oh, yeah, I don't think the wrestling from Usman was actually that impressive against RDA. A guy who has been wrestle-fucked on occasion. And... Yeah, but, I mean... I was kind of wrong about that, wasn't I? Then he got that submission over Kevin Lee, which was actually really impressive. Really good victory. And then he went on the two-fight losing streak. Leon Edwards put on a sensational performance. That was the performance that made me go, ooh, Leon Edwards might win a title. Yeah, and then the Michael Chiesa loss was not... That one was bad. That one was like, "Mm, you probably should have won that my G. And then he went back to lightweight and then got a Paul Felder victory. That was Paul Felder who was training for a fucking marathon. I'm just really running through his entire career up to this point, aren't I? Yeah. What does RDA do well? His pace is absurd. I think he's got a great southpaw jab. Got a great left overhand. I don't know, his combination work is really sensational and he kicks the legs very effectively. I think he's a great low kicker. Ultimately, pressure is his game. Go back to his title winning performance against Anthony Pettis back in 2015. The cage cutting there is just sensational. The the usage of the kicks really good. The interpolation of the wrestling with the striking, really effective. I don't know, he's just so effective when he has his his man pushed up against the cage and he's able to work his combinations, duck in, you know, go for the double leg and then come back up and, and work shots coming out of the clinch on the breaks. Because, I mean, there's not really any break. He kind of, he shoots the takedowns. If you defend it, you pull him up and he, then he breaks and, and, you know, he's throwing elbows. He's throwing three or four punch combinations and then you know, he's on you, even if you try circling off, his cage cutting is just ridiculous, he, he's a very good cage cutter if he gets you on the back foot, and yeah, I think I think that's just kind of the name of the game for RDA, and against Faziev, it's going to be really interesting, I mean, he's going to be dealing with the, what do we got, we got Southpaw versus Orthodox, Fazeev is an Orthodox fighter predominantly, The weapons that you're looking most at when it comes to Fazeev are ultimately going to be the left hook. He has a good right hook, actually. A good right hook, which is is rare. You know, that should be on your Fight Figures podcast bingo card. Callum describing a good right hook from an orthodox fighter as rare. Because, shit, when I see one, I point it the fuck out. But he has a good right hook. I believe, was that what he knocked out Moicano with? Yeah, that Muaykano fight. What he he caught him with the left hook. He goes left hook to the body, and then he goes right up top. It's right overhand, and then he, well, Muaykano kind of reaching, so he's trying to initiate the takedown as he throws the left hook to the body, and that's kind of what allows the overhand right to land. And then instead of accepting the clinch, Vaziev goes, "Well, fuck you! I'm gonna throw a left hook and knocks him down." And and it's interesting because Muaykano like protests immediately. He's like, "No, no, no! I, I was I was fine." I was all good. Uh, I believe it's Tyone that's the ref, yeah, who's got some some bad stoppages. But I think this is a pretty good stoppage. And then and then Moicano like gets up and falls over immediately. So that's pretty. It's not funny. It's sad. We don't like brain damage, but also it's the fight game. So you know it is what it is. You kind of got to laugh at it, or it, it gets morose and sad. But yes, um, I think for Zeev, He's got a great left hook to the body. He's got a good fade away switch kick. I mean, his switch kick in general is just incredibly fast. It is probably the fastest switch kick in mixed martial arts right now, discounting Edson Barboza. He's got interesting side to side movement as well, whereas Barboza can't, for the love of God, figure out how to pivot. Faziev moves side to side quite effectively. So. You know he'll move side to side, and then he'll plant really quickly, and he'll fire off his outside low kick. And that that outside low kick against Viziev looked sensational. Not Viziev, that's him. His outside low kick against Moicano looked sensational. His his switch kick to the body. If you want to see the best version of it, go and watch the Mark Casey fight because oh man, he was he was thrown it two or three times in a row on some occasions, and the speed is blistering. It's just sensational. He does get caught a couple of times in that Moikano fight, though. It's worth noting. And I believe the Moikano fight was before the Bobby Green fight as well. So, obviously, the Bobby Green fight was not as fun for for our man Fazeev as some of his previous fights were. I mean, he came into the UFC, uh, lost to Magomed Mustafaev, via TKO in the first round, and then he went on, or he's currently on a five-fight winning streak, but then he went on a bit of a run. He decisioned Alex White. He got the decision against Mark Casey, which I think was a very, I mean, that was a very incredible, it was a very impressive performance. I think it was that performance that kind of put him on the map. And then the Moicano fight was kind of his statement, was his stamp on things. But, I mean, it wasn't a perfect performance. He got caught about two minutes in, with a pretty nice, a couple of really nice right hands actually. I think Moicano found that, you know, if he was working in combination, particularly as Fazeev's throwing the fadeaway switch kick, which is something that I think one of the best examples that I point to is like Gilbert Burns versus Tyron Woodley, because Tyron Woodley, his his money shot is obviously the overhand right, so... If that overhand right is being thrown or it's away from the body, then it leaves a whole lot of space. Like the elbow is not there to protect the body when you throw the switch kick. And so in that fight, Gilbert Burns is, you know, when he sees the overhand right coming or he sees the straight right coming, he's fading away and he's throwing a switch kick to the body. And it was very effective and it kind of mitigated the offensive threat of Woodley because he didn't want to eat it. He didn't want to eat that switch kick every time he stepped in, so he was a little more tentative with his entries. And that's something that Fazeev tries to utilize quite frequently, but Moikano was kind of able to exploit it. He came over the top with the right hand, a straight right, a few minutes in and landed a good shot, and was also having some a little bit of success with his jab. Fazeev does put his hands out there and tries to parry down shots as frequently as he possibly can. And I think if I'm RDA... I'm trying to draw out those parries, and I'm trying to... Well, I mean, you you don't want to get low-kicked by Fazev because he throws like a fucking freight train. He is so quick. There's so little telegraph. It's incredible. He doesn't even need to faint to set things up because he throws so quickly that, I mean, you're, you're just not going to be able to cover that shot even if you kind of have a feeling for when it might be coming. It's just so quick that it's difficult to react in time. So I think if you're RDA... You should be, obviously, working in combination. No shit. No shit. But you should be looking to land the straight left, because RDA is southpaw, obviously. You should be looking to land the straight left as you feel that Fazeev is looking for those, looking for things like the switch kick to the body. You've, You've got to counter that. You've got to counter that early, because it's his money shot. And additionally, he also throws a mean inside low kick, and he steps up into it in a similar way to the switch kick. It's a little faster than the switch kick, just because you have less to do to get to the target. But it's got a similar starting point and a similar starting motion. So he can kind of feint the inside low kick and use it to set up his his switch body kick, and he can do that vice versa as well. So I think, I mean, it's going to be an outside low kick because it's southpaw versus orthodox. And... It's also gonna to come to the lead side as well, which is I think is gonna be a little more difficult for faziev to land to the body because he's gonna to have to clear that lead he's gonna to have to clear the lead hand instead of the the rear hand. Instead of waiting for the for the straight right. Which is which is a little bit easier because okay, so let's say like like I just mentioned, I mentioned the Tyron Woodley Gilbert Burns fight. And how Burns is landing the switch kick to the body as a counter to the right hand when when Woodley's stepping in. Now, in that instance, it's the rear hand that is the threat. What you're trying to avoid and counter is the rear hand, and it's got more distance to cover. So, as you're trying to time it, you have that extra split second, because... It has a little bit more distance to cover than a lead hand, than a jab, for example. Whereas we're talking southpaw versus orthodox, you're now trying to throw the counter switch kick, or you're trying to throw the switch kick underneath the lead elbow, and you're trying to counter a lead hand shot, a jab, for example. Now, a jab isn't going to take as long to get to the target as a rear hand because it's a little bit closer. It's quite significantly closer. And, you know, this was combat sports, so a difference of a quarter of a second can be very significant. It can be the difference between landing a shot and getting a knockout and, you know, completely whiffing and getting countered. So, it's going to be interesting. I'm trying to think of how many balls. He fought De Casey and did have success with the switch kick in that instance, but I think RDA, I think RDA has a much better jab than D'Casey, who's very kick-oriented in his game. So... I mean, RDA will throw kicks, obviously, as we explored just earlier. He he does have really nice both inside and outside low kicks, uh, particularly against particularly against orthodox guys. I think he's got a really nice outside low kick, and and he will he will gladly throw the inside low kick as well. Even though you know open stance matchups, you often see guys kind of not going for that inside low kick as much with the rear leg because it's got a bit more distance to carry. A little more distance to cover than, you know, if someone was the same stance as you, because you're trying to target the leg right in front of you. In that instance, if it's the same stance, you're targeting the leg right in front of you, you don't have to cover as much distance. If it's an opposite stance, then you've got to turn your hips over a little further and you've got to cover a little more distance. It gives you a little more opportunity to be counted. But... RDA doesn't really give a shit and throws a really nice inside low kick in those open stance matchups regardless, which is cool. I like it. It can also drag guys out of stance really easily if you are good at the inside low kick in an opposite stance matchup. Because you kind of turn your hip over all the way, and guys just aren't expecting it. So you can kind of you can upset their base quite effectively. But again, you've got to be very mindful of the counters because you've got a little more distance to cover. But yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting matchup just because of the fact that RDA throws in combinations really effectively and has great cage cutting. So despite the fact that Faziev really good side to side movement, bounces really effectively, parry shots quite constantly, you know, very conscientious in his defense, I think he's gonna get stuck on the fence at some point. And RDA, whilst doesn't have a lot of doesn't have a lot of KO power. I think it's going to give RDA opportunities to get in on the hips and initiate the takedowns. And he does have a really good top game. Really good passing game as well. I mean, fuck it. He arm triangled. I think it was an arm triangle. He had an arm choked, something like that. Uh, Neil Magny, not too long ago. Like a couple years ago, back in like 2018 or 2019. So, he's got a good top game. He did the same thing to Kevin Lee, to be fair. Had an arm choked him. He's got a great top game, great passing. I can see him getting Fazeev down. I think over the course of a five-round fight, I probably, I kind of am, now that I'm looking at it, now that I'm thinking about it, I kind of am siding with RDA a little bit. But RDA is also very, he's very, he's hit quite a bit. Go back and watch that Tony Ferguson fight. He gets hit a lot in that contest. And, you know, Paul Felder was getting to the chin quite quite consistently in that fight even though he lost that fight Felder did. He was touching the chin up a little bit. So I don't know, that's a difficult one, but I think RDA does have a genuine shot. I think his cage cutting is really is really solid. I think he's going to be looking for that inside low kick and I think you should be you should be trying to push forward as that switch kick comes from Vaziev. Close the distance on the kicker. Don't give them the space that they want. That said, he's got to be careful of getting his own kicks caught because, I mean, we saw it against Moicano. Moicano threw out a kind of a lazy push kick, lazy front kick, and uh, got scooped up by Vaziev, and he got swept immediately. Vaziev backed up because he didn't want to go to the ground, but, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful with the with the kicks in this matchup just because you might end up on your back. And I don't know, Vaziev might jump on you. Who knows? I think it would be a dumb idea, but it could happen. That's an interesting fight. Yeah, actually. I think RDA I think RDA might take it, but it's very interesting. I really don't know. RDA might very well struggle with the with the lateral movement. I think yeah, I think he might find it very difficult to cut off the cage. Even though his cage cutting is sensational, I think he might find it a little bit difficult, at least for the first two or three rounds. Check again if it goes to the fourth and the fifth. Because for Zeev, he did gas a bit against Bobby Green. Bobby Green was able to win, very convincingly, that third round against Fazeev. And a big part of that was just the fact that Fazeev wasn't able to keep the side-to-side movement up as consistently and wasn't pulling back to avoid the jab as effectively as he was in the early going of the fight. So, you know, he was also eating a lot of low kicks in that matchup. Oh God, it's such an interesting fight, and I keep flip-flopping on it. I'm going to take RDA, but, oh, fuck, it's close. Ko okay, Baraglio is taking on Um Trojan in the co That should be fun. Sayed Magmedo vs. Douglas Silva-Diond Wow, that's a fucking... That feels like a layup. Douglas silva deandraj I'd like. He is a fucking bantamweight tank. But is he... Oh, he's coming a win off of uh, a fight with Morozov. So, yeah. All I've got in my head when I think about Douglas silva deandraj is that loss to Piotr and... and Yarn just kind of beat him up. <laughs> just really consistently beat him up over the course of those two two rounds. But Yarn's also a fucking gangster. So it's not that, you know, not that big of a takeaway. I don't know. That's actually a pretty interesting fight now that I'm thinking about it. I, I don't think Silver D. is a particularly interesting fighter technically, but he's strong as fuck. And he flurries pretty effectively. He does move... He does shift a lot with his punches, though. When he's when he's moving forward, he kind of just he when he throws combinations, he just steps forward, and I think he might get taken down and controlled by Namagomedov here. I think he might get controlled quite easily by Namagomedov here, and he doesn't want to be fucking around in the clinch with Namagomedov. So, you know, this should be a win for Sayed Namagomedov, but Douglas Silva, Silva de Andrade is is pretty decent. Jared Vandera is taking, taking on Chase Sherman. Jesus Christ. Chase Sherman, man. How the fuck is this guy still in the UFC? He got cut, didn't he? And then they had to find a short notice matchup for, what's his name? Alexander Romanov. And he, he ended up back in the UFC. He got cut. And then he was immediately back in because they needed a short notice replacement. And now he's on a new fucking multi-fight contract, if I recall correctly. Yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy, and now he's taking on Jared Vandera, and I mean, I said it going into the Parker Porter fight against Parker Porter, like coming into that Parker Porter fight, I'd I'd never really watched Parker Porter that much, and I but I remember looking at that matchup and going, oh shit, Chase Sherman's still in the UFC, awesome, I get to bet against his opponent, I get to make free money, I just get to make a guaranteed, I get to make guaranteed bank, and I never watched Parker Porter. I watched like ten seconds of a Parker Porter fight. I think it was the fight against, I think it was the one prior to that against Josh Parisian. I watched that and I was like, good enough for me. It's good enough to beat Chase fucking Sherman. And uh, lo and behold, it was, in fact, good enough to beat Chase Sherman. It's all you need. You just need to know that the fighter in question is remotely competent. And it's a sure bet. Chase Sherman stands too tall. He's easily controlled in the clinch. His right hand is a fucking mess. He's just easy to touch. Just easy to fucking touch. Got key locked by Romanov in the first round in his most recent fight. Against Jake Collier got rear naked choked. Didn't look good in that one. Yeah, I don't know. I think the only fight that I've seen him look actively decent in. Even even in even in wins, I think he mostly looks kind of shitty. Even when he's winning, I'm like, bruh. Bruh. You know he went off to, or he got cut from the UFC after losing to Augusto Sakai. In what was his third loss on the trot back in 2018? Then he goes to Ireland, fights, wins three in a row, all by first round TKO. And then he comes back, TKOs, IK, Weaver and then now he's on his four fight losing streak. That's just just won't won't fucking stop. But yeah, and that. And none of these fights, I thought he looked good. And the Waiver fight, I didn't think he looked that good either. He had that win against Rashad Coulter back in 2017 at UFC 211 that I thought was pretty good. But even then, he nearly got fucking finished, didn't he? I think Coulter had a moment of like, oh, I'm coming back after getting the shit pelted out of him. It was a banger of a fight. But, yeah. It's kind of the only highlight. The rest of Chase Sherman's career is primarily lowlights. If you're referring to the UFC, that is. So Jared Bandera should pick up a win there because I just don't—I just think Jay, Chase Sherman kind of sucks. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. Michael Johnson's back. When did he get that win? He he won re- relatively recently against Alan Patrick. Got that victory. And that was in May. This is a fucking short turnaround. He's taking on Jamie Malarkey. Oh my lord, Jamie! What are we doing here? It's coming off of that loss against Jalen Turner, right? Yeah, got got TKO back at UFC 272. Did have that pretty impressive win against Devontae Smith back in October of last year. Got that TKO. And got a KO over Karma Worthy back at UFC 260 in March of last year. But, I don't know. I don't think he's that impressive. Malarkey is. He's Australian though, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he is. He's from New South Wales. But, Uh, he's he's a bit of a dog. I mean, his approach is... His approach is volume and getting in your face and roughing you the fuck up. And I just think Michael Johnson... Yes, Michael Johnson is the king of stealing defeat. What's what's the saying? You know? Swiping defeat from the jaws of victory or some shit like that? I've completely forgotten. But... I think Johnson's... You know, Mike's speed... Still got some decent kicks, and his his straight left will always be a threat. As well as his right hook. He's got a really nice right hook as well. I just hope he doesn't do what he was doing against Patrick. Oh my god, he was throwing that jab to the body. And he's just getting countered over the top of the right hand every fucking time. So I I hope Henry Hooft sat down with him after that fight and just slapped him a little bit and went, For the love of God, Michael, stop jabbing to the body and telegraphing it like a motherfucker. Like, if you're going to jab to the body, set it up and and be subtle with it. You know, double jab to the head and then go to the body or something. You know, just just be conscientious that you're probably going to get punched in the face if you don't set it up appropriately. I hope that conversation occurred. Yeah, I think Michael Johnson should win this fight, but, you know, it's Michael Johnson, so who the fuck knows? Cynthia Calvillo is back against Nina Nunes. Oh, I love Nina. She's fucking great. Puts on a lot of volume. She's had some all-time bangers, to be honest. She had that fucking banger against Angela Hill back in 2017, which no one talks about, but they should, because it was dope. A fight that, like most of Angela's career, Angela probably could have won, but, you know, whatever. She had that victory against Claudia Gadalia back in 2018. That was kind of a wake-up call to everyone. There were a lot of people, I think, doubting her and saying, oh, she's not. she ain't that shit. She ain't that motherfucker. But then she came out and she beat Claudia, who was still considered at the time, you know, pretty legit. And that was really satisfying for me as someone who was like, oh, you know, Nina Nunes. She's got great fucking... She's got great combination work. Grappling's decent. And, I mean, yeah, she just works in combination really effectively. She puts up good high kicks as well. Kicking games actually kind of under underrated. Even though her flexibility seems atrocious, she puts up some good switch kicks, some good high kicks. Then she had that loss to Tatiana Suarez back at UFC 238, which is a fight actually where she rallied in the third round. And I think she won herself some fans in that contest just because of her grit and determination. She was controlled by one of the best grapplers women's mixed martial arts has ever seen. And she still came out in the third round and, and kind of put it on Suarez a little bit, who was gassing at the time. Impressive stuff. But then, most recently, she returned after a two-year layoff, after having a kid. And she lost to Mackenzie Dern via Armbar in the first round, which we don't like. Very sad. But, yes, yeah, she's coming back, and Cynthia Calvillo is a much more winnable fight. I feel like Nina should have a pretty sizable, like, size advantage. A pretty significant size advantage in this contest. And I think Calvillo is going to struggle with the combination work of Nina. I think this could be a three-round decision for Nina. And I hope to watch. I hope that's what occurs. Because I like Miss Nina Nunez quite a lot. Eamon Eamon Zahabi's back. He's taking on Ricky Tercios. I still can't pronounce his last name. Ricky won the Ultimate Fighter, I believe. And he had a fucking banger of a final fight. I'm trying to recall who he fought, actually. But he had a banger of a fight in the in the main event. Not the main event. In the final of that. And it was versus Brady Highstand. That was a split decision. Crazy fight. I thought Brady had the better technique in that contest. But Ricky was just so ferocious and so persistent in his offense. Man's got a fucking chin and a half. Yeah, that should be really fun, actually. And Eamon Zahabi... Trains with, presumably, I I assume he still trains out of TriStar with his brother, but yeah, jabs pretty effectively. Recently got a KO over, actually it wasn't recent, that was versus Draco Rodriguez back in February of last year. Hmm, it's been a little while, he's had a bit of a layoff. But he's probably most famous for the, for being KO'd at UFC 217 to Ricardo Hamosh, which is, I mean, it was a dope fucking finish, but it was a pretty dumb not, a, not dumb, I guess. Hamosh spun, spun for the spinning elbow and didn't land. And then he went for it immediately after. So, like, literally a second later, he spins again. And I guess, you know, you just don't expect a motherfucker to throw a spinning elbow two times in a row, do you? Bada bing, bada boom. Zahabi ended up deaded on the ground. Yeah. Got murked. Not fun. Not fun if you're us, Zahabi. That was a weird night for him, actually. Yeah, his brother got fucking KO'd and then Joe, what's his name, Joe Duffy got finished by James Vick in the middle of the card and then GSP nearly uh, he had some issues against Michael Bisping was, but was able to pull off the victory and uh, and win the midway championship against Michael Bisping in the main event. So weird night for us, uh, hubby but that's entirely you know, not the point. I don't know why I'm bringing that up. Anyway, Antonio Shevchenko's Antonio, sorry, Shevchenko is taking on Courtney Casey. Don't care. Carl Robinson's fighting Kennedy and Chukwu. Hmm, interesting. That's all I say, really. And there's a away fight in the opening of the card between two guys. I'll be honest, I've never heard of. Ronnie Lawrence is taking on Saad, uh Yakub Kakramanov. Kakramanov. I recognize that name. I'm sure I've actually seen him fight before. But eh, you know. I mean, I'll see him fight this weekend anyway, so whether I do whether I have actually seen him fight or not, we'll find out in due course. What else is there this week? There's like an LFA card, I don't believe PFL's on. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's much more to talk about, if I'm being honest. I'm just scrolling through some of the news here just to finish things off. We've got Oh Jan Blachowicz and Kamaru Usman were like trying to push a light heavyweight fight between the two of them. Which was weird, and I don't care about it. I don't know, I just I don't care. I don't care. Why, why move up? The welterweight division is... There's still a few fights there. And Usman is preparing for Leon Edwards, is he not? When's that fight happening? That is happening at some point, correct? I feel like that fight's been booked a million fucking times. Yes, Usman is scheduled to rematch Leon Edwards at UFC 278 for the UFC welterweight championship in Utah. How good. Oh, and apparently Usman has returned to Sanford MMA, according to according to an MMA News article. Which is probably based off of fucking Gilbert Burns' interview on the Joe Rogan experience. Because that's what the MMA media is. The MMA media just listens to the Joe Rogan experience, or listens to Ariel Helwani, and just recycles that shit. Over the course of like two or three weeks, you know? UFC welterweight contender Gilbert Burns has discussed reigning champion Kamara Usman's recent return to Sanford MMA in Florida, which Sanford MMA recently changed their name. That's what we can talk about for, like, the final few seconds here. Sanford MMA, I'm trying to... Yeah, they initially started off as, what, the Black Zillions, which was a weird name, but interesting, and then they turned into, like, Hard Knocks 365, and it was, like, a couple of different gyms coming together. And now they've recently changed. Well, they went Sanford MMA because I think that sounded a lot more professional than like Black Zillions or Hard Knocks Three Six Five, which I think just a weird, a weird name for a gym. Sanford MMA, I didn't mind. I thought it was a little bit vanilla, a little bit boring, but it got gets to the point. Looks professional. I like it. But they've recently, like the other day, they just rebranded to Kill Kill Cliff FC. Genuinely. What the fuck? Who thought that is a good idea? Who thought? Who? Who? That's the dumbest shit I've ever seen. Jesus Christ. Y'all are fucking nuts. Yeah, no, I just I went through all the news just then, and uh, no, I, I can't really find anything that's significant. Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier were talking shit at UFC 276. That'd be a cool fight. Yeah, that's about it. Alright. That'll probably wrap us up. It is currently 9 o'clock here on the 6th of the 7th, 2022. And by the 6th of the 7th, because you Americans, you list the dates the opposite way to the rest of the fucking world, don't you? Yeah, no, it's uh, that means the 6th of July, 2022, you fucking idiots. Yeah, so... I hope you all have a great week. I think this fight card will probably be not that great because Chase Sherman's fighting on it. But I'm still, you know, moderately moderately excited to watch Viziev and RDA go at it for five rounds. That'll be heaps of fun. Hope you have a great rest of the week. I'll catch you later. Bye.